6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 through 40. Well, I probably should complete this idea. She will ratify her position. She rejected him in Matthew 12, which led, of course, to the whole events of the rest of the book of Matthew. She will acknowledge her iniquity and ask him to return. On the third day from that request, he does, as recorded in Hosea. We, we, we deal with that. Zechariah chapter 12. Maybe we should touch on this. So keep your finger here. Let's turn to Hosea. Let's take the last verse of Hosea chapter 5 and gives you a hint of this. No, I'll get to Zechariah. Excuse me. I'm going to start with Hosea. I figured we'd stop on the way. Okay. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15. The Lord says, I will go and return to my place. That's an interesting phrase. That means he must have left his place, huh? In order to return to his place, he must have left it. Here's one of these cryptic little phrases tucked away in a prophecy. I will, re- I will go and return to my place for how long? Until they acknowledge their offense. The word offense is singular. The they there is Israel. He says, I'm going to go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Singular. What offense? The rejection of the Mashiach. Okay. Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, they will seek me early. What affliction? The tribulation. The great affliction. The great, the time of Jacob's trouble. And there will be a prayer that Israel will officially pray. Actually, the remnant in Israel will officially pray, and that's chapter 6. 1. Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, he will heal us, he hath smitten, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come up unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now, it's not free of controversy, but some scholars, not just from this passage, but a handful of others that I won't take you through tonight, is that there is a very definitive role for the remnant that is a prerequisite to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that is that Israel ask him to return. And as you understand that, or at least that view, it begins to give some insight as to why Satan is so vigorously anti-Semitic, and not just in a prejudicial sense, in an anti-humanitarian sense, but in a very supernatural sense. There's all prejudice is bad and, and, and tragic. But the, the, the anti-Semitism that is born of Satan is specifically designed to frustra- attempt to frustrate the emergence of a believing remnant, a Messianic Jew, that will be in a position at that appointed time to 
officially acknowledge their offense and petition his return. And maybe that's what Jesus said. He said, no sign will be given this generation but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he spoke of the three days and three nights, which has a double fulfillment. One fulfillment was him being in the grave and resurrected. Some scholars believe there's a second overtone to that here in uh, Hosea, that it's the third day from their petition that he returns, and that's when he becomes bloodstained, as, as Isaiah 63 describes him, or as I, uh, Revelation 19 describes him, as a warrior with blood, a vesture dipped in blood, etc. Not his shed blood, the blood of his enemies. Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19 are your references for that if you want to dig into that. Now, having gone this, we just touched a little bit further. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 12. And actually, you might consider it starting with the verse before Isaiah. I mean, Zechariah 11:17 is the only physical description of the Antichrist in the Bible that I know of. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock, the sword shall be upon his arm, and upon his right eye his arm shall be completely dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Why? Because of his head wound. Maybe. Idea. Who knows? Dead. Uh, then we get into chapter 12, and it's kind of interesting, particularly verse 3, or verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all peoples round about, when they shall be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. What a strange idea that Jerusalem should be a cup of trembling to all the world. And yet today, right now today, all major powers, not just the Soviet Union and the United States, all major powers, tremble over Jerusalem. It's a big issue, a big policy issue. Most of them don't have the guts to put their, em their, their uh, um, em thank you, embassies there. Where do you put an embassy in a country, in the capital? What's the capital of Israel? Jerusalem. Where are embassies in Tel Aviv? Why? Because we're afraid to. It has overtones. You know, PLO might object. So. In that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth be gathered together against it. By the way, all nations of the earth be gathered against it. That's the U.S. too. The day will come when even we will also turn upon Israel. Tragic. Yet it moves on. We get to verse 10. There's a fascinating verse. You need to mark it if you have it in your Bible. Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. What a fascinating phrase. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Firstborn son, pierced. That's who they shall look upon. None other than Jesus Christ. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the uh, mourning of Hadrimenon and in the valley of Megiddo. And of course this all ties into Revelation 16 and on it goes. And I, we, won't, we won't go into all of this stuff. We might just skip ahead a little bit though. It's kind of fun to look at chapter 14 which continues this theme. Verse 2, 14-2, And I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Who's gathering the nations against Jerusalem to battle? The Antichrist? In a sense, maybe tactically. Who's really doing it? The Lord. Who brings the Soviet Union to inv in invade Israel? The Lord does. He says, I will put hooks in your jaws. It's not clear that Gog and Magog want to even get into the deal. But God 
pulls them there, put hooks in your jaws and draws them into the battle. And Ezekiel 38 and 39. But continuing here, it says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the woman ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the, resid and the residue of the people shall uh, not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. As what? As when he fought in the day of battle. When did the Lord Jesus Christ fight the day of battle? Jericho, Jericho you got it. Absolutely. Jer Jer Joshua 5 describes who really fought the battle of Jericho. And if you haven't been down this trip, I encourage you to get the Joshua tapes and you'll be in, in for some interesting discoveries because the battle of Jericho violated all the rules of the Torah. The Ark of the Covenant was not supposed to go to the war, it leads the procession. Six days are supposed to work, the seventh day rest, not at Jericho. Seven, once, once a day, for six days, the seventh day, seven times, and they keep silence until the seventh time on the seventh day when they blow their horns, the wall falls out. Why? Because it's a model of the book of Revelation. Before the battle, they send in two witnesses to get Rahab the Gentile out of there. And the kings affiliate themselves against Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness by title. And they get defeated by signs of the sun and the moon and the stars in the battle of Beth Horon. The sun stood still. And what do the kings do? They hide into caves saying, rocks fall on us. Study the book of Joshua as a model and a foreshadowing of the book of Revelation. It's a whole new insight. When did the Lord fight in the day of battle? In Joshua. It's a prelude, a, 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 try, a dry run, if you will. In that case, he took his people to dispossess the land of the usurpers. Ten nations, three earlier put down, seven nations left. The Amorites, the Jebus, all the whole bunch. The next time he's not going after just the land is the planet Earth against ten nations, not just, I mean, global nations. Three put down and seven there, seven heads and ten horns and all of that. And then verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day, where? Upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst and so forth. And you all know about the fault line, and there really is a fault, and it runs this way, and it's going to be kind of exciting and kind of fun. So, and who comes with him? Verse, end of verse 5. All the saints with thee. That should be fun. Okay, we got a little off the subject, didn't we? Um, we've never done that. I know, it's a, it's a first. Um, something else um, that you should know, we talked about um, something else we as Gentiles might be warned about because Paul takes the trouble. Back in Romans 11, something else I wanted to pick up while we were there and I forgot to. Uh, in Romans 11, that's where we had that, you know, verse 25 is the one I zeroed in on. But I want to pick you up here about... Um, Oh, let's pick it up about verse um, 15, maybe, 1115, Romans 1115. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, shall the receiving, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? In other words, if the casting of Israel away opened the door for you and I as Gentiles, I mean, that was a blessing, wasn't it? Bad for them, but great for us. If God used their casting away to bless the world, can you imagine the blessing when they're brought back. That's what Paul is saying, a typical Jewish logic. But if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, meaning Israel, the root here, by the way, is Abraham. Not obvious, but until you stay holy. If some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, 
and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou beareth, bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the good. And then he goes on. He Paul's made a point. You know, don't get, don't get, he's just saying, don't, don't get carried away here. We're there, but by the grace of God. Let's not forget it. And he goes on to build his argument, and I wanted to highlight that to you all the way down through uh, verse 24. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So stand by. Lots of exciting things coming when, when that all happens. Now, getting back to this whole business of Jeremiah and the thing, I wanted another commentary on this whole subject, far more competent than I, or far more competent than any other commentary I might recommend to you. I commend to you the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews. And specifically, I'm going to focus your attention on Hebrews, the whole chapter 8. Well, let's pick it up about verse 7. That sounds safe. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So again, here, the 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 writer to the Hebrews uh, is is pointing out again the first and second covenant. In fact, we'll pick up verse six. For now, he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. Speaking of Jesus Christ, how much? Uh, but how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has established upon better promises. Here, the writer to the Hebrews. Inspired the Holy Spirit is going to contrast the first and second covenant, if you want to put it there, the, 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 the old covenant and the new covenant. For that, if that first covenant had been faultless, then there should have no place been sought for the second. The very fact that there is a second covenant means the first covenant had weaknesses, and we went through some of that earlier. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Does that sound familiar? That's because he's quoting from Jeremiah 31 31. Okay. Not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand out of the lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not my covenant. I regarded them not, saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. And he that decayeth and groweth old is ready to vanish away. And now he goes on to, to, to uh, talk about the, the whole, the new covenant, you know, the old type of the old, he, he talks about the tabernacle and, and deals with all of that. And he gets, um, this all builds up to the new covenant and the reality is about verse 11 on, picking up about verse 15. For this cause, he is the mediator of a new testament or new covenant, if you will that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. If, you have, if you're the beneficiary of a last will and testament, it doesn't do any good until a guy kicks off. That's sort of what he's saying. That's the concept we take for granted of the will. Well, he's saying, he's, he's using the term covenant in the sense of a testament or a will here. But the testament is a force uh, after men are dead, otherwise it is no strength at all, while the testator liveth. Verse 17, verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was de dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept and so forth, 
Um, all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats and of water and of scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. More we sprinkled with the blood the, both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry and almost all things. And he goes on. And, and, then, and then the writer goes on to point out that these were just foreshadows, hints of the real reality. And he goes on and talks about and he builds that whole argument and we can't we can't take this on. We have to go through all the Hebrews. So get the Hebrew tapes and uh, and we'll head back. We'll head back to Jeremiah. We have uh, ten minutes to do the next three chapters. We'll just uh, jump right in. Okay. We got down about verse thirty-seven. Let's get the next four. So at least we finish the chapter here. Thus saith the Lord. Verse uh, Jeremiah thirty-one, verse thirty-seven. Thus saith the Lord: If heaven above can be measured, and the fountains of the earth searched out beneath. I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that I that for all they have done, saith the Lord. Don't confuse the reverse logic. That's typical rabbinical rhetoric. Meaning in a sense the opposite, right? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Garab and shall compass about to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead, bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields under the brook Kidron, unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy unto the Lord, and it shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. Pretty obvious, but let's make a couple of points here. Number one, it's literal. It's not. A, this is not symbolic Jerusalem we're talking about here. This isn't the Revelation 22 or something. This is literal Jerusalem there. These are boundary conditions. You can go there and walk these paths. Pretty much, they got a couple ambiguities here. We're not 100% sure where some of these things are. The corner gates in the northwest—that's easy. Uh, Gerb, probably to the west, but we're not sure. Going is uh, uh, south near the Valley of Hinnom. Kedron, of course, you know, is on the east. It's like a thing of 15. And the horse gate is the southeast corner of the temple, probably. And the Tower of Hananiel from is the northeast corner. Nehemiah 3, Zechariah 14, elsewhere. So these are literal places. It's a literal city. Now, what's interesting to me about this is is that God here is saying they are going to be an eternal people. The city of Jerusalem will be remembered when the U.S. no longer exists. It's eternal. Interesting. A couple of key points I want to make sure that we have not been in the pace of finishing up here. I want to make sure we, we don't um, um, miss. On the one hand, the Old Testament does not forecast the church. Paul tells, that, tells us that in Ephesians 3. It's a very important principle, biblically, to understand the church itself is not visible in the Old Testament. The salvation to non-Jews is. Those aren't necessarily the same thing. And salvation to non-Jews is, is, surfaces in the first seven verses of Isaiah 49, plus lots of other places. So that's, uh, that should not be a surprise. The fact that Israel is to reject God's plan is also prophesied in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah 53. The other point that I perhaps have clumsily organized here, but I hope you have gotten across, is that the, the covenant that's mentioned in a Jeremiah 31, 31 is a covenant to Israel. It devolves upon us by Israel's rejection. So don't confuse that covenant is available to us indirectly through Israel's rejection. From that, don't jump to the erroneous conclusion that Israel and the church are somehow the same thing. One of the most important perceptions that will set you apart from most scholarship of the last 1900 years is to recognize that what God says to Israel, He says to Israel, and what He says to the church, He says to the church. 
There are some links, and this is one of them, but they're very specific links. Don't confuse the church and Israel. The church has done that for 1900 years and really screwed up its eschatology. Those confusions should have been put aside, and in, in in, if no, if no late, no earlier, certainly by May 14th of 1948, when the state of Israel was reestablished, and this causes to re-examine these incredible promises. One of the questions uh, about this new heart business, we talked about the new heart. Uh, that new heart, by the way, shows up in Ezekiel 11, 19, Ezekiel 18, 31, and Ezekiel 36, 26. Not just the places we've looked, and of course it's amplified in, in, in John, as we've talked about earlier. One of the questions that should puzzle all of us, it puzzles John, excuse me, it puzzles Paul all through the book of Galatians. And that is, why do we insist upon returning to the Old Covenant when our Lord himself and the prophets and Jeremiah, all of them, warned us that it was not capable of fulfillment? You and I are beneficiaries of the grace of God. The book of Galatians is your, is your guide to that. Be careful, because we all have a tendency to put ourselves under the Old Covenant, build rules, build mechanisms by which we're going to please God with what we do wrong. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. By that, we presume to add to that which God has done completely. Very important idea. It underlies all of this. The New Covenant, we've talked about the Old Covenant and all its weaknesses. The New Covenant is individual, not national. The New Covenant is internal, not external. The New Covenant is universal, applies to all. And it's eternal, has no end. The Old Covenant passed away. Jeremiah hints at it. Paul nails it down. It's, it's done. The New Covenant is based on love, not fear. What's the opposite of love? Not hate. What's the opposite of love? Fear, right. Old Covenant, in effect, evoked fear. The New Covenant is based entirely on, on love. Okay. Um, we didn't get very far, but I think we, I hope we covered some important ground. Next time, it's, um, next time we're going to have a very, very interesting study of title insurance. We're going to have a study in title insurance. We're going to discover in the next chapter, chapter 32, and we'll try to pick up the pace again because I don't want us to get bogged down uh, in Jeremiah. But this is important stuff. In chapter 32, though, we have a record. It's the only record in the Bible of a transaction of this type. And it's going to be very interesting because Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah that his, I think it's his cousin, is going to um, uh, offer him some property. And he, he told Jeremiah you ought to buy it. Now, if you want a strange proposition, the property his cousin's going to pawn off him is, now bear in mind, they're in town. The Babylonians are, have the city under siege. The property is for sale. has already been captured by the Babylonians. You talk about buying some, you know, Florida land that's underwater, you know. And But Jeremiah goes into the proposition because God, the Lord told him to do this. Why? Why should Jeremiah buy this piece of property? He knows they're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Is Jeremiah going to be around to take it? That's got to be a bum deal. But the Lord has, has him do it for two reasons. Two reasons. 
One's very direct, and one's one has application to them. It teaches them a very important encouragement. You can guess what it is. It means it's evidence to them that they're coming back. That's what it is. There's another reason the Lord had Jeremiah by that land, and it affects you and I. It's going to be a mechanism by which he is going to reveal to us what the passages in Leviticus 25 and Ruth 4 mean, which incidentally deal with property transactions. And without this, you will not understand Revelation chapter 5. The key to Revelation chapter 5 is tying Leviticus 25 and Ruth 4 through this example in Jeremiah 32 to understand Revelation 5. That's what we have in store next time. For those of you that are just zealous to, to do some homework, I encourage you to read Leviticus chapter 25. There's verses 23 through 28 particularly, but it won't hurt you to just do the whole chapter. And Ruth chapter 4, the love story, the climactic part of the love story, where there is the redemption of the land. What do we mean by that? You and I normally would have no capacity to understand the real estate transactions that the Bible has in mind in Israel. It's a different kind of world. He, the Lord links up the concept of the family and the tribe and the genealogy with the land in a very special way. It has to be a kinsman and all of that. And he has a very specific reason for doing so because all of this is, a, is an anticipatory uh, a series of episodes that uh, anticipate Revelation chapter 5 and a seven-sealed book. And another kinsman redeemer redeeming it. What's really going on is what we're going to deal with next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You and I are New Testament Christians. We perhaps have a little better insight of what that means. That's an Old Testament phrase out of Jeremiah 31, 31. You and I have the benefit is that we're not under the law. Why is that a benefit? Because we can go break the law? No. The reason it's a benefit is because the law could not give life. You and I are under the law of Jesus Christ, the law of the new covenant, if I can, if I can say it that way. We are under grace, not works. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.